Well, if you've been with us over the last week or two, you'll be aware we're engaged in a study called Keep It in Context. And the purpose of this series is to shed light on several passages that are commonly quoted out of context and then twisted to communicate ideas that God never intended. In addition to correcting those errors, the greater goal is to put a spotlight on the danger of eisegesis, of using God's word in the way that a drunk uses a streetlight, more for support than for illumination, and to reinforce the critical importance of exegesis, of searching the scriptures to draw out what God has said. Exegesis has three rules. Context, context, and context. We ensure that our understanding of God's word is accurate by looking at a verse in its immediate context, its context within the greater section of scripture where we find it, and ultimately its context within the entirety of God's word. In simple terms, we look to scripture to interpret scripture. Yes, you may reply, but what about the Holy Spirit? Well, most certainly we affirm the active, vital ministry of the Holy Spirit in illuminating the word for us. It was he, after all, who breathed God's very words out through those men who he used to pen the original manuscripts in the original languages, even through the individual personalities of those human authors. Indeed, it was also he who preserved God's word through the ages by scribes who gave their lives to the discipline of duplicating the manuscripts and to scholars who have undertaken the task of translating it into languages that we speak today. By the labors of these imperfect men, from the authors to the scribes to the textual critics and translators, the Holy Spirit has faithfully delivered to us the very word of God. And with all that effort invested, it really doesn't make any sense that he who indwells us would not also illuminate his word for his people. Amen? Yet, as history so clearly reveals, men and women are all too vulnerable to lying spirits who would take great pleasure in leading us astray. So how then do we check ourselves? By testing our understanding against the consistent teaching of Scripture. The Holy Spirit cannot lie. That is how we can know that we are listening to him. When our understanding of a text that we are studying squares with the rest of God's word. Our principal text for this morning is from the fourth discourse of our Lord recorded in Matthew's Gospel. We find it in Matthew 18, starting at verse 18. Now, many times, the abuse of the passages that we are covering may be aided by appealing to a particular translation that is either poor or uses archaic grammar or vocabulary. But today's text is different. Regardless what translation we choose, the unusual language in these verses opens the door for abuse. So let's start with the text itself. Ready? 
Matthew 18, verses 18 through 20. I'll be reading this section from the King James. Let's stand together. This is the word of God for his people, for you, for me. Jesus is speaking and he says, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. Forgive us our sins, Lord. Forgive me my sins, for they are many. Lead us this morning in your word and bless the reading and now the teaching of it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the first message of this series, Pastor Chris dealt with the misuse of passages such as Psalm 37.4, John 14, 13-14, by the hucksters of the name-it-and-claim-it theology of the so-called prosperity gospel. Today's passage is also favored by that same crowd. In particular, verse 19 seems ripe for their appropriation. If two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. That seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? By comparison, verse 20 feels pretty innocuous. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Well, of course he is, we might say. But that first verse, now that's a bit of a conundrum. What do we have here with all this binding and loosing? It doesn't take much of a stretch for our pride to kick in and start giving us ideas about having the power to call the shots on how things are going to be up there. We're down here. On the surface, it seems to play right into that whole system, doesn't it? At this point, I would just like to stop and thank Pastor Chris for assigning this particular passage to me. <laughs> now, I don't really see much point in spinning our wheels in the mud of these false teachings. Most of us have a pretty good idea what those folks teach. Instead, let's remember the big point of our series. The three rules of sound biblical interpretation are context, context, context. Let us look then at the context of these verses. Chapter 18 contains our Lord's fourth discourse. Think of it as a mini-sermon. Many in its length, but profoundly massive in its implications. To properly unpack this chapter would take a minimum of four weeks, but we don't have four weeks, so I'm going to do my best to distill it all down for us, and then I'll leave it to you to engage more deeply with this chapter during your own devotional time, okay? The discourse begins 
at the beginning, conveniently, the beginning of the chapter. Sometimes our chapter markings are a little bit crazy. I kind of nailed this one. This is a pretty good place to start a chapter. It starts with a question from Jesus' disciples. Reading now from the ESV, Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? My children have learned over the years that just because they ask a simple question does not mean that I am bound to give a simple answer. (laughs) Ask them, they'll tell you. (laughs) This is just such an occasion for the disciples. Continuing with verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. From their question, it is evident the disciples had become consumed with their place in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, they were still expecting Jesus to ascend to power on earth. They expected the kingdom of heaven to be established on the earth. To whatever extent they were beginning to grasp a transcendent future reality, their focus on their position within a hierarchy reveals that they were seeking their own glory. As is typical, especially in any inner circle dynamic, they had begun to feel as if they had earned some special place for themselves in whatever was to come next. No doubt, each of them was feeling a little entitled. They had come to the party early, stuck around, paid their dues, and pretty soon their loyalty would pay off. Oh, how suddenly we find ourselves in the garden. Can't you just hear the hiss of the serpent in their query? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus' reply should have cut them to the core. Unless you turn. What other word comes to mind when you hear turn, biblically speaking? Repent. Yes. Repent. In our English Bibles, the word repent indicates the Greek word metanoio. That's a compound word meaning to change your thinking. But turn, as we have here, indicates strepho, which means change, turn around. This is the kind of turn that is wrought by God in the heart of a sinner. We are running from him. He turns us around and causes us to run toward him. That a child was nearby demonstrates that more than just the 12 were present. This is a greater group of disciples. This is a larger crowd. Jesus starts by calling over a little child who simply obeys. Jesus called him, so he responded. In much the same way as the twelve once had done. Now it's worth noting what is not in view here. This passage has nothing to do with the supposed innocence of a child. All the innocence that is required to enter the kingdom of heaven 
is provided to us by Christ. We are not innocent, nor can we make ourselves innocent. And by the way, neither are children. Also not in view is childlike faith, as so many are inclined to suggest. I understand the urge is strong to think that way, but it's simply not supported by the text. Jesus is demanding something very simple here. Humility. A lack of concern for social status. It is the opposite of the subtle pride that had led them to start jockeying for position. Hence, Jesus told them they needed to turn around. The Pharisees, they were obsessed with gaining position, with advancing to the top. And as our leaders are, so are we. But Jesus said that the one who has humility as a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, a heart turned from pride to humility is one of the clearest indications that someone has been born again. He continues, verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, over the course of these two verses, the way that Jesus moves from speaking about one such child to these little ones reveals that he's warning not only about a literal child and leading them to fall into sin, but young believers in particular and any Christ follower in general. Since pride and humility are in view, clearly this warning applies to anyone who would tempt any believer to the sin of the Pharisees and of the disciples. The temptation to be like God led our race to fall in Adam. It is no wonder that Jesus would use such harsh terms to warn against playing the role of the serpent, the tempter. Verse 7 really makes that transition clear. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. This world is full of people who take great joy in baiting God's people to sin. You don't have to spend much time on social media to recognize that there are people who make a sport of taunting professing Christians into fights. If they can get you to lose your cool, they will delight in pointing out your hypocrisy. Don't fall into their trap. Your testimony is at stake. But their guilt is also compounded. Nonetheless, while those who tempt us to sin will certainly be judged for their evil work, we are by no means without guilt for our own actions. We are responsible for our own choices. And sometimes purity comes at great personal cost. Verse 8 And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Most of us have at some point heard or perhaps read a sermon about the importance of putting our sinful nature to death. The Puritans called it the mortification of the flesh. This is our daily act of participation in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And there are days when it seems like a losing battle. But thank God for the testimony of the Apostle Paul, who exclaimed, For I do not understand my own actions. I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do do the very thing I hate. So in these harsh terms, Jesus is intensifying his warning against sin by charging us to rid ourselves of any good thing that we know opens us up for temptation. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 11 in some manuscripts, For the Son of Man came to save the lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. As a maturing believer, do not belittle a younger believer. Do not treat them unkindly. Have patience with them. They will stumble. They will make many of the same mistakes that you have made and are still making. And Christ will pursue them as lovingly and as faithfully as he would and does you. Jesus, the good shepherd, actively tends to his sheep, his disciples. Okay, we're approaching the immediate context of our headline verses. Are you seeing a theme that has started to develop? Having addressed the humility that marks a true disciple, the danger of causing others to fall, and the seriousness of guarding ourselves from sin, and then the Lord's commitment to reconciling his bride, he moves on to another aspect of the same thought. What to do when a brother or sister sins against us, or by their sin causes us to stumble? Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Do not talk to anyone else. Do not just say to yourself, okay, I see how it is. You do not have the right to do that. You have a responsibility to your brother for his growth, and for the welfare of the whole church. 
Last week, we considered how the word of God is a mirror in which we see ourselves for who we are. Remember that? Sometimes we don't like what we see in the mirror. And so we avoid the mirror altogether. Other times, we can have blind spots. Things look good where we're looking, but maybe we're not getting a full view. Maybe we're not looking as carefully as we ought. We still may not be seeing clearly. This then is our first step. Not to chalk it up to experience. Not to just let it go because we don't like confrontation. But in humility, to inform them of the offense so that they can repent, so that we can forgive, and so that our fellowship can be restored. Listen, this is not a confrontation. You don't like confrontation? Good. This is not a confrontation. A forgiven heart takes no pleasure in winning an argument. A forgiven heart yearns to forgive others. It beats to forgive others. To share what it received from Christ. And this is exactly how love keeps no record of wrongs. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. May I suggest that the scars of forgiveness display the strength of a body. Look around at the senior saints in your life. The closer that two brothers or sisters are, the more times over the years they will have forgiven one another. Unfortunately, there is another path. Verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is the second step. And it reflects back to Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. That passage, by the way, goes on to prescribe terrible consequences for malicious witnesses. So, if our brother rejects our private attempts to reconcile, then we enlist the help of others, not as witnesses, but as counselors. They test our complaint first, then join us in our effort to seek reconciliation. Again, the goal is that in being approached by others who also love the erring one, they will be persuaded to turn from their pride, repent of their sin, and be forgiven so that fellowship may be restored. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them... Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The church, the ecclesia, is only referred to two times in the Gospels. Did you know that? Both are in Matthew. 
by Jesus himself. The first is in chapter 16. More on that in a minute. These first two attempts having been unfruitful, the matter sadly must be presented to the church, the gathering or the assembly of those who are in fellowship together. The goal remains the same, to win a brother and to protect Christ's bride. Her testimony hangs on the purity of her members. Sadly, prideful refusal to repent essentially betrays the hard heart of one who is in truth not in Christ. The purity of the church is at stake, and so for the sake of the testimony of Christ, excommunication is the necessary last resort. This is a proclamation that they have not specifically in their trespass, but in their refusal to agree with God about their sin and to repent, they have demonstrated that they do not belong to Christ. They are not united with him, and so they must not be united with us. And it is at this most sobering moment that the testimony of heaven gives us comfort. To announce that God's righteous judgment remains on one we have loved gives us no joy. But our verdict must resonate with the eternal counsel of God. Noted New Testament Greek scholar Bill Mounts renders the verses that follow this way. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. When we have in genuine humility, faithfully followed the steps laid out by Christ to bring our brother to repentance, but our attempts to restore fellowship have been met with a prideful hardness of heart, we take solace in that the judgment we pronounce is not of us, but of God. Verse 19, and again, I tell you the truth. If two of you on earth are in agreement about anything, whatever you may ask, it will be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. This is our context. These verses address corporate prayer, specifically in the context of church discipline. Much has been made in our day of that word agree in verse 19. That word of faith crowd we mentioned earlier, they play fast and loose with it. And you can tell a great deal about someone's theology if they throw it around as if it had magical powers. Oh, I'm going to agree for a new house. I'm going to agree for healing for you. I'm going to agree for this. In its context here, though, it is a very precious word. The Greek word behind it is exactly where we get our word symphony. Did you know that? Never underestimate the unifying power of prayer for a body of believers. Sometimes we are united in prayer of intercession on behalf of a wandering brother. Other times in rejoicing that a lost one has come home. But sadly, occasionally, our hearts intermingle with our tears as we must hand someone over for the destruction of the flesh, praying still that they will repent in the end and be saved. 
But however we must pray, we find the good shepherd united with us in our prayer, seeking his wandering sheep, rejoicing over the one he has restored, or tending to our broken hearts. I mentioned a moment ago that this passage contains our Lord's second reference to the church, the ecclesia. The first one appears just a few pages back in chapter 16. We've been there very recently as we explored one of Peter's encounters with Christ. In that passage, Simon had just confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I'm going to read part of this passage to you from the complete Jewish Bible, CJB. Matthew 16, verses 17 through 19. Shimon bar Yohan, Yeshua said to him, How blessed you are, for no human being revealed this to you. No, it was my Father in heaven. I also tell you this, you are Kepha, which means rock. And on this rock I will build my community, my church, my ecclesia. And the gates of Sheol will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you prohibit on earth will be prohibited in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. The big picture truth that we see revealed across these two passages is that the community, the church, the bride that Christ is gathering to himself is an everlasting bride. And so... Who we are as a body here has implications into eternity. Who we are as a body here has implications into eternity. The way we forgive others is a window into our own hearts. And any local church, fellowship, assembly that does not yearn to be reconciled within itself will not exhibit a passion to reconcile the lost to God. In that vein, Matthew 18 continues with another question and a final parable. The teaching of the Pharisees had been that one must forgive their brother three times. Moved by the Lord's emphasis on the importance of forgiveness, Peter did a little quick arithmetic and generously suggested a figure more than double of their standard. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Just in case we get lost in the math, gloss over the context and take lightly our responsibility to forgive, Jesus continues. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, 
and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master, his master, summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, the master delivered him to the jailer's until he should pay all his debt, which he never would. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. In seven days, if the Lord tarries, we plan to observe the Lord's table. I'm going to start meddling now. Christ established two ordinances for his church. In baptism, we give testimony of God's work in our lives at the moment of salvation, washing us of our sins and raising us from spiritual death. In the Eucharist, which literally means give thanks, we remember that these gifts came to us at the greatest cost. Our Savior's body broken and his blood shed for us, taking our sin onto himself that we might be covered by his righteousness. Does anybody see where I'm going with this? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul recounts the very first Lord's table. If you grew up in the church like I did, you've probably pretty much memorized it without even trying. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night on which he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. Before we gather back here next Sunday morning, I have a homework assignment for you. Set aside one hour to read and reflect on 1 Corinthians 11, but keep it in context. It turns out the passage we think of as the Lord's Supper is served up in a great big caution sandwich. So, 1 Corinthians 11, I want you to start at verse 17 and read it all the way to the end of the chapter. And see if you might not have just a little more homework to do before we partake together. I think you may find that we do. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your words. Some of your words are easy to receive, some of them are hard. But we thank you that in reconciling us to yourself, you have given us hearts and you have given us the ability to seek reconciliation with one another. Cause us, Lord, to take this matter seriously and fill us with joy as we obey, as in humility we love one another enough to be reconciled. These things we pray together 
of God our Father, in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.